Caro, and welcome to episode 23 of Caro Pop. Our guest this week has been known as Miami Steve, Little Steven, and Steve, Steven, and Stevie Van Zandt. That last one is his name on Twitter and his new memoir, Unrequited Infatuations. He's been Bruce Springsteen's sidekick in life and on stage and record, and helped produce the albums The River and Board in the USA. He was the original chief songwriter, producer, arranger, and guitarist for Southside Johnny and the Asbury Jukes, and he wrote that band's signature tune, I Don't Wanna Go Home. been the front man of his own band, Little Steven and the Disciples of Soul, which released its first album in 1982 and its most recent one in 2009. He also created Artists United Against Apartheid and led an all-star collection of rockers and rappers on the Sun City protest single and album in 1985. Those efforts are often credited with helping speed the end of apartheid in South Africa. Despite having no acting background, Van Zant was a crucial cast member on one of the consensus greatest TV series in history, The Sopranos. Just when they thought I was out, they pulled me back in. Series creator David Chase originally wanted him as Tony Soprano, but instead, Van Zant played Silvio Dante, Tony's consigliere. Several years later, he was starring in and producing, writing and directing, and writing music on Netflix's first original series, Lilyhammer, which was set in Norway. Someday, and that day may never come, I will call upon you to shovel some snow. But until that day comes, accept this as a gift. On the weekend, my kids are baptized. We will look into your problem. More recently, he played Jerry Vale in Martin Scorsese's The Irishman. Twenty years ago, Van Zandt created the syndicated radio show Little Steven's Underground Garage, followed by the Sirius XM satellite station of the same name. If you want to hear the rock and soul he grew up listening to, and the music since then he considers worthy of this grand tradition, that's your station. You also hear his distinct voice as he tells colorful tales celebrating music history. Van Zandt oversees two other Sirius XM stations as well, Outlaw Country and Little Steven's Coolest Songs in the World, which assembles the songs he has honored with that title each week on the Underground Garage. A lot of those songs appear on Wicked Cool Records, the label he launched in 2004. He also created a Broadway show around the band The Rascals. If all that weren't enough, he wrote his memoir, Unrequited Infatuations. I asked him, what's so unrequited about his infatuations? I wish my infatuations were as requited as his appear to have been. Look at all that has resulted from his love of music, the arts, and activism. But when you read his book and listen to him speak in this conversation, you become aware of how much more he wants to do and wishes he had done. This is a fascinating conversation with a multi-talented, energetic, accomplished guy who is still not satisfied. And he explains his reasons. He's a leading champion of a brand of rock and soul music that has become marginalized in our culture. He also fronts a band that produces ambitious shows and albums, yet has, to his mind, little power in the marketplace. 
And he's a key player in a way more popular band that Bruce Springsteen has on ice, at least for now. When does he expect the next Springsteen and the E Street Band tour? We'll find that out. I ask him why he thinks the 70s were the worst time in history to record. We discuss the death of Procol Harum's Gary Brooker and Van Zandt's efforts to get that band into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. I also bring up Attractions bassist Bruce Thomas's complaint on a previous Carol Pop episode that Springsteen ruined things by playing such long shows that other artists, such as Elvis Costello, felt compelled to follow suit. Does Van Zandt agree with Thomas? Does he ever listen to music only for pleasure, not work? What did he think of David Chase's Sopranos prequel, The Many Saints of Newark? Is there a chance Lilyhammer might return? We cover a lot of ground. Please enjoy this Carol Pop conversation with Stevie Van Zandt. Thank you so much for doing this. I thought of you uh, just the other day when when Gary Brooker passed away, because uh, because you and I are both big fans of Procol Harum, and uh, I you know I'd seen him just a few years ago, and and he still had an amazing voice. No, it made me sick because I just you know it should have been in the Hall of Fame years ago, and uh, you know keep trying and trying and trying, and uh, you know they'll get in eventually because it's just it's an embarrassment that they're not in. Huh? Well, I think uh, people know him for that first single, and you got the single in, but the single doesn't even have B.J. Wilson and Robin Trower on it. You know, that's not like the band. I've always made it very clear to everybody that they're they're not just a one song. You know, I have uh, at least fifteen songs on my playlist. You know, so I mean, uh, they'll get in eventually. I mean, they just it, it, it's just a little bit irritating. You have to explain to people literally one of the greatest bands ever uh individually uh, the songwriting i mean unparalleled i mean there's right. nobody nothing else is like it salty dog i mean come on you know they, right. they go in for just that alone uh shine on brightly uh i mean you know kaleidoscope um you know there's a million of salad days uh devil came from kansas devil came from kansas oh forget it you know my first guest was Richard Thompson, and I always kind of wonder whether he he'd heard was thinking of that at all when he did the song "Shoot Out the Lights," because they both have that "bow, bow, bow" thing going on. <laughs> Maybe so, but anyway, uh, you know, like, you know, I just I just hate I hate it when I know somebody's going into all the fame and then they die. You know, they die before it happens. I just you know, right. you really want to try and get them in while they're alive. But, you know, it's just uh, same thing happened with the songwriters. You know. Uh, you know, Ellie Greenwich really had to die before we got him in. Uh, but we got m most of the great songwriters in, with a few exceptions. But, uh, you know, you have to wait for people to die before it happens. It's it's unfortunate. Are you still very involved in that, by the way? Yeah. Yeah, I'm on a nominating committee, which, uh, you know, it's tough. It's tough every year because <laughs> everybody has good, good choices. You know what I mean? It's not like... Um, People are coming in with, with bad choices. Uh, you know, everybody's got different opinions about things, but there are certain certain groups that I think, you know, frankly, transcend taste. When, in the case of Procol Harum, who literally invented the progressive, you know, art rock genre, you know, them in the, them in the left bank, you know, who, who will never get in probably. Uh, 
uh, you know, that whole concept concept of combining classical music, you know, with rock, you know, I mean, they owned it. And, and you know, aside from being individually legendary, you know, B.J. Wilson, drums, Robin Trower, it's one of those things. Yeah, I agree with you. Um, I, I really enjoyed your book. And, and part of it was because I'm a big listener to Little Steven's Underground Garage. And I originally listened to it when it used to be on WXRT. And we finally got a new car last year and and I got the Sirius XM. And I'm like, well, we got to keep this for, for Little Steven's Underground Garage. And so you're such a natural storyteller on there that that I'm hearing your voice telling the stories in, in the book. And, and you're just a fantastic storyteller. And you just also hit hit all these notes of things that, I mean, like, you know, I'm a Midwestern kid who's a little younger than you, but, um, but, but I've relate to so much of what you're saying about, you know, whether it's about music or about kind of approach to life. I, I, it was, it's not even a question, but I'm just saying, I really appreciated it. So. Well, thank you. Thank you. You know, I want it to be more than just a book of, for, for musicians. You know, I want it to be more than that. I think, you know, the first half of the book is sort of that, you know, local kid from Jersey makes it to the top of rock and roll, which is a terrific story, you know, by itself. Uh, but, you know, the second half of the book is where I think things, the, the themes start broadening out to, uh, you know, get a bit more inclusive and a bit bigger, you know, uh, the search for identity, the search for purpose in life and the things that I think everybody can relate to. Well, you called it unrequited infatuations. Are, are most of your infatuations unrequited? It seems like you've yeah. requited a lot of them. <laughs> oh, yeah, I requited some. Yeah. You know, you got to be careful, you know, not to sound ungrateful because I'm, I'm of course, very, very proud and, uh, and and grateful about the success of the E Street Band and and, uh, uh, and Sopranos and Lilyhammer and... Uh, and the Sun City Project, you know, um, extremely, uh, extremely proud of those things. So, yeah, there's some some are required, um, but the personal work that means the most to me, uh, you know, the more the more personal stuff um, has never found an audience, really. So, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a balance to balance. You know, you go through life just uh, trying to get the work done, regardless of uh, you know, we, 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 we deal in a, in anybody in the entertainment world deals with a balance of art and commerce, you know, so we're always trying to, you know, trying to find that, that commerce and, uh, you know, looking back on my life, it, it, it now is quite obvious that it's a, <laughs> it's the triumph of art over commerce <laughs> because, uh, you know, nothing I did, none of my own personal things have ever been successful commercially. So, uh, you know, it gives you a little bit of a, a, a balance in, in your, uh, you know, in the requi right. requirement, requirement department. <laughs> well, you've had, you've had successes. I mean, you've, you've had the level of success you've had in the stuff that you're considering unsuccessful is still greater than most musicians, but you're also buddies with someone who happens to be one of the most successful musicians of all time. And you've been in that band. And so like, Compared to that, you know, that's pretty, that's a pretty high, high bar to reach. But in terms of people knowing your music and having an impact, and I, I, went, I went back and rewatched the, I remember the song Sun City well, but I hadn't watched the video in a while. And just to see everyone coming 
together in that and Bono with his huge mullet and uh, just this this combination of, you know, rap and, and just the energy with it. I mean, that was just quite I, I mean, I remember seeing it at the time when it came out, but that was quite a phenomenon and, and quite a collection of people for a cause. And and unlike a lot of these charity charity things, you could point to where it led, which was the end of apartheid, which is that's pretty requited. Yeah. No, 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 no. That no, that was a, a, a complete triumph, and I'm, I'm proud of it. And uh, all four of us, and I, and I always, uh, I always insist on naming the other guys. Danny Schechter, you know, uh, uh, who publicized the whole thing, or else nobody would have known about it. Arthur Baker, uh, whose uh, phone book was basically the record, uh, and Hart Perry, who, who 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 filmed it all. Again, if he hadn't filmed it, nobody would have known about it because radio wouldn't play it. You know, um, so so that was a that was a complete, very rare, uh, complete victory. And uh, and I'm and I and I'm not I'm not uh, not saying anything to the contrary of, of that. Um, but you know. Uh, I mean, looking back on that now, frankly, it's a it's a miracle. I mean, I I, I don't know how we did it. Right. Uh, certainly couldn't do it now. That's for sure. Uh, so I'm glad I'm glad we did it when we did it. Um, and, and that's and that that's a rare that's a rare victory that you look back on. Yeah, I've I've been reading a bunch of different memoirs recently. It does seem like one of the themes of these books is that when you're a creative person people sort of tend to see the successes but when you're living that life you you you're you you're actually feeling the blows of all of these frustrations and disappointments and and it's so rare that uh you know that things sort of work out and so you think that uh you know you know bob odenkirk just jumped from mr show to you know uh, you know, Breaking Bad to Better Call Saul, but you don't know about the frustrations in between because you don't really think about them. And and I think with with you, that's the case as well, where, you know, there are these these highlights because people know you from, you know, Sopranos and Lilyhammer. And, you know, so in one this one realm and then they know you on the radio and uh, and then they also know you for your music and your charitable work and your uh, you know activism. But they're still like you living it day to day. It doesn't feel like the highlight reel, it feels like just life and life is hard. <laughs> That's a good way to put it. Yeah. And, and you know, you're not going to dwell on, on, on the negative stuff. You know, I tried not to dwell on it really. I tried to be a little bit humorous with it in the book. Uh, you are, you know, cause I, I mean, the truth of the matter is uh, the things I've done probably 5%, maybe 10% of my, of my life. You know, and that's the part, you know, the 90 percent that you don't see uh, is the frustrating, you know, trying to get things going, trying to get things funded, you know, uh, uh, basically, you know, just waiting for deals to happen because, you know, lawyers and accountants run the world now and nobody's there's no sense of urgency. Uh, so, you know, that's the thing that, you know, people say, oh, you've accomplished so much. I'm like, are you kidding me? You know, 90 to 95 percent of my life is pure bullshit. I mean, <laughs> you know, meetings and, you know, projects that don't happen, you know, people who say they're funding something and then don't, you know, uh, all of that, all of this stuff that, you know, you don't want to see or you don't want to dwell on. So the fact that you get anything done these days uh, is, a, is a bit of a miracle. So, you know, I, I, I'm, uh, 
I've always been a little bit frustrated at my output, uh, you know, my productivity. But um, the, the three years before the quarantine, I must say, you know, uh, the most productive years of my life. I, you know, we did we did two new albums, you know, right. three, three, you know, two world tours, uh, six album packages came out, you know, re remastered everything. Those albums, Soul, Soul Fire and Summer of Sorcery. I mean, those are like ambitious artistic records too like there's a lot going on on those albums yeah yeah thank you there is uh and and i was so so lucky that we were able to tour with it because you know i was thinking just it was just i'm hearing a big sound right now and it's it's very expensive to get on the road and we had people contribute to that but it, but it, i would literally spend all day every day on tour raising money for the tour that we were already on <laughs> You know, so, I mean, you know, those kind of things, you know, then, then you get the you get the two hours or whatever it is on stage, which is, you know, the sanctuary, you know, that that's your that's your that's that's the fun part of, of, of the day. Yeah, you, you wrote this later when you were trying to get this rascal show going. You said it's the, it was the same story as always. I've never been able to raise money for my own projects. I can do it for others, but not myself. I spend every penny I have while I wait for lawyers or investors or sponsors or donors or patrons, because if I don't do that, I would never create anything. I do what I have to do and then try to get paid, get it paid for after the fact. I don't like it. I don't like it one bit. I do not like living this way. I don't have a martyr comp, some martyr complex I come to win. And I relate to that, by the way, totally. Like ever since I left the paper, I sort of try to do what I want to do and then try to make it work afterwards. And it's it's hard to do that, but it's also hard to sort of sit around and wait for everything to fall into place before you can be creative. It's just not going to happen, you know, not going to happen. So you got to just find a way to do it, find a way to keep moving forward. That's, I think that's one of the keys of life in general, you know, just, you know, and, and that's the big, the big theme of the book, I think, in the end is, is that, um, Right when I left the E3 band, I wasn't just changing jobs. I was ending my life, you know, and and uh, and I considered it the end of my life. And now you look back and you say, well, wait a minute. Everything I've accomplished in my life, I've done after I thought my life was over, you know, uh, because I found a way just to kind of move forward somehow. And I think that's something that everybody can maybe, uh, not everybody, but whoever runs into a problem, you know, can maybe get a little bit of, a little bit of inspiration from because uh, everybody's going to hit the wall sometime. You know, most people can have a problem, right. you know, can be, you know, can be disappointed. And uh, if you can just find a way to move forward, um, you know, destiny is going to surprise you. And uh, literally, you know, 99% of what I've accomplished in my life happened after I thought my life had ended. So, so uh, that's what the whole second half of the book's about. And I think, you know, I just think that could be maybe, a, hopefully, hopefully that's, that's helpful with somebody. Which was most of sort of fulfilling the dream for you when you were a kid? Uh, playing on stage, recording in a studio, or playing all the records you love on the radio. Yeah, it's funny how uh, the whole radio thing really did justify <laughs> a, uh, a a rather useless, you know, what was thought to be a useless youth, you know, listening to records. Uh, it turned out to be uh, coming quite handy. Well, it informed uh, everything you did, though. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's hard to divide those things. I, I mean, it, 
the thought of being uh, making a living playing rock and roll was uh, was quite a quite a long shot. So just the fact that you can make a living doing it, I think, is the first hurdle, you know, the first miracle. Then you get into the business and then, you know, I, I talk about the five crafts of rock in, in the book, you know, uh, the last of which is uh, learning uh, recording, which uh, uh, took us a long time to do. You know, really, it took us five albums. And, uh, you know, now you know, everybody's recording at home and, you know, it's a whole different story. But 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 um, so that was uh exciting um uh, also and 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 then you know yeah playing the songs on the radio was really um a nice a nice uh a nice way to justify my youth how much of uh, the underground garage is part of your sort of day-to-day life and satisfaction you know what i i when i hear a new song uh i still it's still i still find it exciting and fun i i, I mean uh, really that hasn't changed much um you know we've introduced over a thousand new bands and and um you know we pick a new song a, a new coolest song in the world every single right. week and, uh, and man you know people are still this you know they do it Kid, kids are still doing it you know we got a lot of young bands you know between the record label and the radio um it's 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 um it's it's incredible uh, with with no uh no infrastructure left no industry left really you know i mean it's rock is is totally over in, in the mainstream i mean we're still big live those of us who got through the door in time you know we're still we're still okay live but um there's no reward for playing rock and roll anymore you know, so so yet, you know, we found a thousand bands that are doing it and uh, you want to support them even more uh, because of that. Uh, and uh, they come up with great songs, you know, uh, you know, how could those three, four, five chords, you know, 12 notes, you know, how can people still be coming up with, with new songs? You know, it really it blows your mind. Right. Uh, you know, but it, but they do. And and so it's just as exciting, and I and I get a a real a very very satisfying feeling to turn people on to something new, just like I was turned on when I was you know young and and you know regular radio doesn't do that anymore. So our format is the only one playing old stuff and new stuff. And 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 you, um, and you have your wicked cool label and your your signing bands too and and releasing yes. the stuff. Yeah, yeah, they, they, you know, that that was another factor because, you know, they just had no place to go. You know, there's no, the big record companies are not looking for rock bands, you know. Uh, so we found a way to do it where we can, uh, you know, where we can support these, these bands. And uh, that's very satisfying at this point to turn people on to new stuff, to new bands. And, you know, it's hard for them to break through, but maybe some promoter hears them and puts them on a festival or something, you know, uh, has the vinyl resurgence helped you as a record label? Because, you know, it's, it became so hard to like sell music, but at least records are back, you know, the record vinyls out selling CDs again. So it's more fun to put out a yeah, record and to buy a record yeah, now. 
it, it, would, it would be phenomenal if there was any plants that you could we that were making it you know uh for some they're all tied up now you got it's a year a year you have to wait wow okay which is ridiculous a year okay i mean six months was ridiculous and now it's a year uh because there's no new plants i'm like why not vinyl's not going anywhere you know it's 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 back to stay i'm quite sure of that you know cds may disappear but uh but vinyl's not going anywhere why can't anybody start manufacturing manufacturing plants you know uh i, I don't get it i don't get it i mean every single year it's like another month another month another month you have to wait so it would be great we always encourage people to go to your local record store and, and support them and, and uh the vinyl stores especially but um you know, our bands want to put records out, but at this point, we're basically kind of doing uh, two different releases. You know, you know, when somebody has a record ready to go, right? Want to wait a year, you know, to, to put it out. You know, you know. Hopefully, that's that's going to change. So that that could be your next big uh, money uh, money hole. Uh, you could uh, open your own record pressing, <laughs> wicked cool uh, vinyl pressing or something. Yeah, Jack, Jack White was uh, intelligent enough to uh, to do that, right? You know, he, he, yeah, he found a he found the uh, you know he found the machines, and uh, right 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 as the trend was starting, he was you know was very 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 smart. Uh, Jack White should print your stuff. Come on, <laughs> come on, Jack. Yeah, I was here first. He should. He should. We were the first ones to play him. You know. The first one to play the White Stripes, and uh, his new single is incredible. Have you heard his new oh, single? Oh, I liked it. Yeah, I heard it on I heard it on your radio station. That's exactly where I, I heard it. Just the only place you're going to hear it. Uh, but it is it is legitimately phenomenal. I mean, you know that guy. You know, you, you really can't say enough about him. He's uh, he's as brilliant as everybody thinks he is. You know, he really is. It's got a lot going on. Yeah, early in the book, you have a you have a really nice. Uh, I retyped it. It was so nice. A nice passage where you say, back in the 60s, you didn't just hear records, you felt them. Sound waves entered your body. The needle dragging through analog impulses miraculously etched into a piece of plastic somehow had a deeper, more physical level of communication than modern digital music. And I feel the same way. And it's and it's interesting because I don't know the scientific reason, but I've, you know, I've I've got more into buying vinyl again over the last couple of years, and I'm getting so much more out of it again. And uh, it just, it makes a difference. Yeah, um, you know, the, the science is all over the place, but I, I, I just, uh, you know, you're not going to get, you're not going to get analog from, from beginning to end anymore. Um, you know, which is the, which is makes the biggest difference. But um, there's no doubt in my mind, not a single doubt that there was something about the old analog vinyl system. Right that had a different effect on, on you than the than the than the digital uh you know domain i mean uh there's just no doubt about it we uh, you know i would wear out records i mean you know how hard it is to wear out one of those singles i mean you got to play them 500 times and i would play them 500 times you know i don't hear anybody play anything 500 times now i, I don't think it's gonna happen right uh, and you were listening to them out of speakers, even if they weren't great speakers, but there's a difference between that and having the earbuds, 
you know, there's just a different visceral experience. If it's just like in your ear versus like in the room hitting you in the chest. Well, I guess that's true too. But, but, you know, what I was listening on as a kid, I mean, you know, whatever speakers came with the record player. Yeah, exactly. Like a little close it didn't plug in any speakers. That was, you know, I love. I loved what you said about how the uh, the portable record player was like basically the genesis of rock because kids could take it into their room and listen on their own instead of having to listen to music on the big family console in the living room. I I think that's a completely you know true statement. Uh, there's a fantastic book uh, which uh, called, called I think the forty five or. Um, uh, I forget what the actual title is, but it's about, it's about the, the the creation of the of the forty five record, and, uh, and that whole story is a fantastic story. But that's that's part of it. I mean, you, you know, you 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 never would have got Little Richard past your parents. You know, that never would have happened. I wanted to ask you about this other uh, passage that's a little later where because it's when you guys are making records and you said the 70s were the worst time in history to record virtually every record sounded great in the 50s and 60s and they would sound great again in the 80s and beyond but in the 70s most recorded music sounded weird artificial claustrophobic and then you talk about you know how the engineers had taken over and there was too much separation and then you just called it everything that makes real music want to throw up and i found that interesting because i think of 70s music uh, 70s records it's sounding pretty good, but from your ears, they don't. Some do, you know, some do, some don't, you know. You know, it's probably exaggerating a little bit for for, <laughs> for dramatic effect, but uh, but the ones we were making sure it didn't, you know, this oh, horrible. I remember that sound like it was yesterday, you know. It just sounded like, you know, playing a, a guitar through a pillow. Um and um, a lot of the records, uh, to my ears, sounded like that. You know, there were there, there was exceptions, but um, it was a weird time. It was a weird time. You know, if you really examine those records that you think sound good, um, you know, I could point out things to you, and I wouldn't want to do it because then you'll hear it the way I hear it. <laughs> but uh, I'll bust my myths. It's okay. <laughs> There's just a certain thing going on there that is not, uh, it's not quite as integrated, you know, it's just not quite as, it's not quite as, uh, as wild as it should be, you know? Well, it's interesting because you go into the high-end stereo store and they'd pull out, you know, their copy of, you know, Steely Dan's Asia or, you know, Dark Side of the Moon. And that would be like the, ooh, listen to the fidelity on that. But it's certainly a different sound from, you know, when, when, when you just had fewer instruments and, and, you know, stuff being recorded more directly, which was in the late fifties and sixties, I, I talked to uh, some mastering engineers and uh, like Bernie Grunman and Kevin Gray, and they were talking about how like the best sounding stuff was from that late fifties, early sixties period. No doubt. When, when those things come on the radio, I mean, it's just, you know, you're embarrassed. If it comes on after one of your records, you can't believe it. You're like, oh my goodness, you know, listen, listen, listen you know, just listen to uh, anything, an Elvis Presley Sun record, you know, you, you don't want to follow that, <laughs> you, <know? laughs> you don't want to follow a Muddy Waters chess record, you know, uh, or even, you know, the early Beatles and Stones and, you know, the early British Invasion or, or Motown records, I mean, you know. 
it's just a whole nother uh, level of quality uh, that uh, you can't really explain. You know, I mean, you can't really you can point out certain things, but in the end, it's just the entire the technology. It just was working. It was working for you. And now it works against you, I think. Yeah, it's easier to record, but but in, but getting those you know sort of organic sounds is is tougher to do. Yeah, the Beatles mono box, which is like all analog stuff, that's like the best the Beatles sound of anything you can you know that's come out in the last twenty years at least. Yeah, it's amazing. You know, the mono stuff is the legitimate stuff. The um, now I think Giles went back in and started remixing some things uh, in real stereo, but. Um, until then, the, the 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 bad stereo versions were all that was available for forty years. Every time I ran into you know Neil Aspinall, who ran Apple, you know he used to run when he saw me coming, till I kept begging him to release the mono versions, which really weren't available uh, until you know fairly recently. Yeah, and I was like, you know, in those days, you know, the assistant engineer did the stereo mix, <laughs> you know. The producer left, the band left, the engineer usually left, you know, and the guy sweeping up would do the stereo mix because it was a gimmick. Yeah, especially early on, like like Rubber Soul or Help, where the vocals are just in one speaker and the drums are in yeah, the other one. Exactly. Which is insane, you know, and that's all that was available for from the Beatles, the greatest band ever for 40 years or so, you know, and I was like. Please, please. And the right before he died, he finally authorized the, the mono verses to come out. It's the last thing, one of the last things he did, I think. I, I really enjoyed also like some of the music sort of theory stuff. And, and you're talking about in, in Hungry Heart that uh, that modulation, because the, you know, the chords are the same for the verse and the chorus. And then you right. have that modulation. And then I was listening to going back to a bunch of your records and, and I was realizing you're, you're definitely a fan of the modulation and you call it uh, modulation, simply a key change in, implemented to surprise the ears, but a bunch of the solos in your, in your songs as well. They have these really cool modulations where you're like, Oh, there it comes. I am the king of modulations. Uh, I, I really do love them and uh, use them all the time. Yeah. Um, it's, it's just a great device, you know, that just, I like to, I like to keep surprising people, you know, if you can, you know, I like to add something every verse, you know, uh, you know, just uh, try and keep surprising, you know, if you, you know, you don't want to be distracting, but, uh, you know, something that just, you know, uh, tickles the ears from every, every, every verse or every chorus, do something different and then modulate for, for, for a solo, you know, and then just going, going somewhere crazy is always fun and trying to find your way back. Right. Or not, you know, but it's uh it's just a fun sort of exercise as an arranger. That's right. That's what I like to do the most, you know, the arranging is the, the most fun for me. Yeah. So much of rock and soul is there's a sort of familiarity of the form of you know the verse and the chorus and and all of that but then there's also the the working in the surprises because your mind is going to just go like of course now it's going to go back to this part and then when it doesn't you're like oh like the beatles right. were brilliant at that because they would just have these little switches that were totally counterintuitive but you'd be like oh, okay and it just sort of made you perk up your ears enough on that and and you know like your modulations do that as well yeah, the Beatles actually took the entire concept of 
rock and roll composition to a new level. I, I personally think strictly out of boredom and uh, having done it so much, you know, they, you know, doing six sets a night, seven nights a week for months at a time at a time when there wasn't that many rock and roll records being made. So they're literally playing, you know, every rock record that existed over and over and over again, you know? So by the time they start writing, uh, you, know, the, all, you know, they start just making up interesting bridges and, and uh, you know, they really took the composition to some new level. I mean, if you go back and really listen to even the earliest, earliest singles, you know, they just they, they go somewhere odd. You know, there's, there's odd, odd chord changes in those songs. Sure. That, uh, you know, they were, you know, you, you don't I mean, they were so good at it that you don't always it doesn't always register, you, you know, uh, how smooth, how smooth it is. Uh, it, it seems very simple and very smooth. And you don't think, oh, that's a really unique chord change. But when you really examine it, 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 it is, you know, I mean, uh, that first 10 seconds of help is, is you know, is incredible. Most incredible. Yeah, I was going to say, even just, just starting with the chorus on like that or Can't Buy Me Love, which isn't even really the chorus because Can't Buy Me Love kind of has two choruses, but just starting with help instead of starting with the verse, it's like, that's different. It just bursts it right at you. And, you know, it's incredible, though. Incredibly sophisticated, you know, with the background vocals doing what they do and, and then George Harrison plays that ridiculous riff, which shouldn't make sense. You know, if you really examine it, you know, <laughs> how does that riff make sense there? But it does, you know, the, I mean, you know, it's just incredible. And, uh, and they're just banging them out, man. They're banging that stuff out, you know, hard days, night and help. I don't know, two, three weeks each. You know, I mean, incredible, incredible uh, uh, how prolific they were and, and 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 maintaining that level of quality. I mean, uh, ridiculous. And uh, they set the pace for everybody. And I talk about this in a book, that, which, um, you know, I wanted to really make the point that they pretty much invented the concept of evolution. You know, there, there was no such thing. You know, you, you, you have a hit. And if and your job was to was to make another the next hit as similar to that first hit as you could, you know, pretty much. Right. And, and, and you know, but every album, they just kept evolving and they pulling everybody with them. And Bob Dylan kind of did the same thing in his own way. Um, but then everybody, everybody had to had to keep up with them, you know, Stones, the Kinks, you know, the Who, and they all started evolving uh, and just making this incredible, these incredible records in the 60s because they were, you know, had that high quality to maintain and that those high standards to meet. And, you know, the Beatles were just leading the way saying, OK, we're going up to here now. Come on, everybody, you know, and everybody's next record had to go, had to get up there, you know, and, uh, you know, and that, and that would continue, you know, until they started saying, okay, we're, we're done, you know, which was, you know, let it be, you know, right. uh, after 67, you know, but through, through 67, from 64 to 67, those, you know, three, four years, uh, just incredible evolution going on you know you, you go from you know literally twist and shout to i am the walrus in in three years you know four years right 
and then ending on that medley with you know at the end of abbey road and have that be your last musical statement that's pretty incredible too so that's yeah that was that was nice that was nice you know When you're home uh, and you know, I don't know, you're like getting ready for dinner, or you're, you know, you're, uh, it's Sunday morning and you're reading the paper. What is it? What is it you put on? Do you have like sort of? Do you, do you like just go to the your stack of records and put on something? No, usually um, I'm checking uh, songs on my label. You know, the, the, my bands submit a bunch of demos. I check every single song that comes out uh, and maintain that level of of quality you know because that's important to me um or i'm picking a coolest song in the world which means i'm listening to 10 albums that my producer uh, submits or i'm listening to the station you know and um and i and i don't i don't pay as much attention as i should to my other station outlaw country but i also listen to that and uh you know, make sure that, that everything is right. But the Underground Garage station, that keeps evolving. We just started a third station. Yeah, with all the coolest songs I've picked in the last uh, 20 years, which is a, a thousand. And, um, you know, so you, so you, I'm always checking the stations to see if they're right, because I'm always uh, saying, eh, that song is time, time to go, or that should only be at night, or, uh, you know, uh, you know, I'm, I want to make sure the balance is right every hour. You know, there's a certain balance of old, new soul music, rock music, uh, British Invasion, uh, girl groups. You know, uh, we have all kinds of categories that have to be balanced. And I'll change the balance every now and then. And it keeps changing, you know, as the, as bands stop getting played on, on regular straight radio, we may start playing them more. Uh, you know, um, we um, at first, you know, we we weren't playing much Green Day because they were getting a lot of airplay, and then they came out with a with a side group, uh, the uh, Hot Tubs, right? The Foxborough uh, Hot Tubs, <laughs> which was uh, great, and that was right up our alley. Of course, that was like written yeah. for us. But then, you know, next time we, we went back to check things out, you know, they, they were getting played less on, 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 on uh, mainstream radio. So we started adding Green Day into the, into the format themselves. Uh, so that happens, that happens all the time, you know. And same thing with the oldies format. Now it goes back to, uh, what, the 80s? You know, they think, you know, they think, the, they think oldies is like, you know, you too. Uh, so I wrote a story for the Tribune in 2011 talking about oldies as a format because the, the oldies station in Chicago, I'd heard Jack and Diane and like the cars. And I'm like, wait a minute. Like, like I know that chronologically those are older, um, but, but isn't old, but like is oldies about how old it is or isn't it a specific oh. genre, which is the fifties to the early sixties. And that's, that's what that story was about. And you talk about that in the book as well. Yeah. People started to think, Oh, it's, it's a matter of chronology. No, uh, this is what I call the Renaissance years, which have now been eliminated. <laughs> uh, you know, once you eliminate the Renaissance from the social uh, fabric, you know, you get a problem, you know. And I mean, uh, it's it, it's a Renaissance, literally. 
you know, the greatest art being made is also the most commercial, but it's just the greatest music ever made in the 50s, 60s, and 70s, completely gone, you know? Uh, and I'm like, no, 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 we, <laughs> we, gotta, we gotta do something about this and uh, make sure that future generations have access to the greatest music ever made. Uh, so that's, that's, that was our whole reason for existing. Right. And, and just the combination of the rock and the soul and which is where the rock had come from in the first place was the R and B. And those things just were very natural together and became, you know, sort of segregated from another, at least on the radio in, you know, the decades later. But, you know, when I was growing up, I grew up in the seventies listening and you'd hear, you know, Lady Marmalade and then, you know, Aerosmith and then, you know, you know, Dickie Goodman, <laughs> and uh, it just was. It, 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 you, you're talking about top forty now. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah but and then I discovered back. FM, and FM had you know other interesting things too. But you'd hear, I heard you know Prince and Michael Jackson on you know my you know progressive rock station. Yeah, yeah, that's true. You would hear that, and uh, it was especially uh, noticeable on on the on the rock and roll TV shows which if you go back and watch them, I don't, I don't know if they're still available, but Shindig, Hullabaloo, and uh, England, right. Steady, you know, um, you know, even though um, the FM stations later would become more, were more segregated, like you say, the top 40 wasn't. And those shows actually um, uh, represented more like the top 40 than they did anything else. I mean, you know, the Beatles would come on and then Marvin Gaye would come on, you know, then the Kinks and then uh, Curtis Mayfield, you know, uh, every single show was like that. So it was, it was amazing to grow up with that rock and soul, rock and soul thing because they were relating to each other. And um, I mean, the Stones were covering songs that were still were, were like six months old. You know, I mean, right. Irma Thomas had "Time Is on My Side" going up the charts. You know, and the Rolling Stones cover it, and and then you know had the hit, which uh, she has never forgiven them for. And uh, same thing with the Valentinos, and it's all over now. You know that 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 was that was going up the charts when the Stones covered it. You know, it wasn't like they covered something from ten years earlier. That was like four months earlier, <laughs> and. Uh, and they again they they got the hit and uh bobby womack was very pissed off and uh <laughs> and, and and sam he was on sam cook's label and sam was like no no no, take it easy relax you wrote it you know you're gonna see a big check for this and uh and of course he, he did the biggest checks of his life of of his life i'm sure but unfortunately irma thomas did not write time is on my side jerry ragavoy wrote it so uh she wasn't so uh sanguine what's the word is that the word <laughs> yeah i like i like what you write uh, early on about you're talking about sort of the 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 solo artist versus the band and you were always in the band um mode in that you uh you know with solo artists you said you fall in love with the guy or you don't but bands communicated friendship family the gang the posse the team the squad and ultimately the community um when you when you look back and you and you and you write, there's one part where you actually convince 
Bruce Springsteen that he should put his name on the band. And then you, and then you write what a putz about yourself. Do you, do you look back and think, Oh, we should have been like, you know, formed a band with a name, like, you know, I mean, better name, but like a name like the Beatles or something like that. And, you know, we could have both been songwriters in the band and it would have been that sort of thing. Or is that just sort of not something, you know, you know, it's outside Johnny also, you were, you were writing all the songs, but it was still this kind of band, but not total band thing. I look back, uh, and I do regret uh, not doing more together. I mean, there was a period when uh, I could have been writing with Bruce um, much more often. And uh, I don't even know why we didn't really, but um, early on, that was certainly, there was certainly an opportunity there to do that. Um, and as far as being uh, in a, the band name, um, it became a hybrid situation uh, when the, when the guy is writing everything and singing it, you now have a singer songwriter situation with a band, right? Uh, um, and and the smart singer songwriters made sure you know who that band was because rock is about bands, not about singer songwriters. So it became the somebody and the somebodies, which was um, the in-between a solo guy and a band. You know, somebody and the somebodies had a leader, but it was still a band vibe. And you, right. you, and you usually would know the band members and, and you had a chance to, uh, you know, the interaction of uh, the band members with the leader um revealed that it was in fact a band consciousness you know um especially with us and and um that seemed like the you know more legitimate thing because he was writing everything and singing everything at that time and i just thought you know he deserved to have his name uh up front he seems like a pretty headstrong guy with very dis you know, I mean, very exacting to the, to the point of, you know, like clogging things up the you know, ideas of what he wanted to do on every record and every song. And, and, you know, you're, you seem like a pretty headstrong guy too. So I could see that, you know, all right, here's your vision. Here's my vision. You know, we'll, we'll work together on this stuff, but sort of delineating, all right, this is your thing. This is my thing. Maybe made sense at the time. Well, he wasn't that exacting. No, um, not till, you know, um, I don't know. He really, you know, he, he evolved as an arranger as, as, as it went. Um, so, I mean, he had certain things that, um, very precise about, I think a little bit more, actually, I think he probably was more precise about things on born to run than the next three albums, you know, than, than darkness, the river or born USA. Um, at that point, he wanted my input, you know, he wanted input from me and, and, and John. John was there earlier, earlier, as far as the input uh, with, with on Born to Run. So but John's input um, was largely, I mean, it was musical as well, certainly. But 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 I think a little bit more importantly, the, you know, conceptual and the intellectual part of what was going on, you know, 
by darkness was just you know the tragedy of i think some of his best songs and i that and the, i just never liked the sound of that album but i i was helping out on arrangements on that already and then we finally got it together on the river and, and uh, right you know and that finally sounded like we sounded live you know if we found a way to make it you know make it sound like a band because it was a band yeah the river was your good sounding early 80s album and the river the darkness was your bad sounding late 70s record to my mind yeah yeah but the idea like writing songs on the same album it just that would have been like sort of harder to pull off at that point no no by then he was very prolific you know he, he you know yeah that he wasn't always that way i mean you know he wrote eight and a half songs for born to run you know and and, and used eight you know what i mean um then 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 the floodgates opened after that you know he writes eight songs for born to run 60 for darkness 60 for the river and i don't know how many for born in the usa you know so i mean just like overnight the the the, the gates just opened um but but, uh, but but early early on you know early on we could have been writing together all of those years that we were hanging out you know and, and i and uh i don't know I, it just never occurred to me i just was a pretty slow stupid kid you know what can i tell you, <laughs> you know? well and you were also doing and you were writing those you know all the south side johnny and the jukes records and songs i mean and, i mean before that yeah before that right because yeah, the other I mean, yeah. 10 years it was 10 years before that <laughs> you know where we were friends so we you know we could have been doing things together for for years and uh that would have been a good thing you know it would have been a good thing i mean you're sharing a lot of musical experiences at that time yeah oh yeah yeah totally yeah we go up to we go up to Greenwich Village on a bus and uh, and see uh, bands at the Cafe Wa Saturday afternoon. We started doing that together. And you guys would take notes at like the the guitar players who were really good. Oh, uh, we steal all kinds of ideas and bring them back to our own bands. You know? By the way, uh, you know, in, in another one of these bands of the Someone and the Somethings, you had Elvis Costello and the Attractions, and uh, Bruce Thomas, their their bassist. I interviewed him, and and he was complaining that he's a Bruce Springsteen and the East Street Band. They screwed it up for us because they played such long sets, such long shows that Elvis wanted to play longer shows, and it's like I just thought we should get done in ninety minutes, and we just had to do started doing these two and a half hour shows, and it was all Bruce and the East Street Band's fault. I'm with him. <laughs> I'm with him. I, you know, shorter the better. Of course, I say that, you know, and, and then I do my tour and I do the same thing. You know, uh, I was doing two and a half, you know, sometimes three hours on my own show. So, you know, um, the idea, though, of, of, you know, the old, the old, uh, <laughs> Uh, you know, the old Alan Freed shows and Murray the K shows, uh, you know, three, four songs <laughs> right. in the next band, you know, uh, my, that might have been a bit extreme, but, you know, I do like that idea of, of shorter sets when I, you know, when we started doing underground garage shows live, um, we were doing four bands 
you know, and we would do, you know, 20 minutes, 20 minutes each, you know, maybe the headline, it would do 40, you know, because I mean, let's face it, how many great songs do you have, <laughs> you know, unless you're, uh, uh, you know, unless you've been around for a while and have been really good for a while, you know, most new bands, you know, they only have a certain amount of good songs, you know, right. really great songs, you know, so just play the great ones, just play the great ones and move on. There are a bunch of things in the book that, that totally cracked me up. Um, uh, one of them was uh, you're talking about uh, going out into the African desert and you're talking about how much you, uh, the, the one thing that the desert, the no one warns, warns you about is the flies. I hate all forms of bugs and the desert flies are relentless. Where the fuck do they come from? And it made me think, where do desert flies come from? I didn't look it up. I thought that was like this, this funny aside, like, wait, wait a minute, where, where did, where do they come from? It's really quite unexpected, you know, because you're really in the middle of nowhere, you know, there's nothing alive for as far as the eye can see. But there's those damn flies, man. You you like you're someone who looks at a situation. I relate to this. You look at a situation, you look at someone being creative and you think I can help and I can help in this way, whether it's, you know, helping arrange a song, helping produce a song, helping get it out there more, coming up with ideas for it you know, writing, you know, music, you know, putting in ideas in, in the music and you do a lot of stuff that's kind of the un, under the, you know, sort of behind the scenes, you know, s- stuff that makes something good. And often it does make it good. And, and you are glad to have made it good, but then it annoys you. It seems this is what I'm getting from the book, at least it annoys you when that sort of thing is taken for granted because people don't realize, Hey, look, this was sort of a group effort. This is, you know, this is, these are the things that, that, that I did. And, and people don't seem to understand that. And I'm wondering if that's sort of like a conscious dynamic with you or whether I'm just sort of reading that into it. Well, I, I, it's a little complicated. I mean, it, it's a gift and a curse, first of all, uh, to have that ability to make things better. You know, and I really, I do have that. I can make bad things good, good things great, and great things better, no matter what it is. Uh, first of all, it, it, it's, it's a curse because nobody wants to hear it. Uh, and secondly, I can't apply it to my own life. Uh, but, but it's also uh, a part of what makes my, my life so complicated because you're, the urge or the ability to help other people takes away time from your own work. You know, it, it, it's one or the other, you know, and I like doing that, you know, and I um, am a little bit uh, lazy and, and uh, you know, I've never been really encouraged to do my own work anyway, not really. So without the encouragement and without my own feeling of really needing to do it, um, you tend to not, you know, you, you take time away from your, what would be your own work as, as an artist. That's why I became an artist so late. Well, you know, very late in life, really, because I, 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 the easier road for me, the, you know, the, the, the more, uh, you know, lower hanging fruit or whatever, you know, the, you know, the path of least resistance was helping a lot of people who need it. Everybody needs help. And I know how to do that. 
and it feels good to do that. And I don't really uh, always necessarily need the the, the uh, gratitude. I don't expect the, the gratitude. Uh, you know, that, that, I, that doesn't bother me. But, uh, you know, occasionally you'll find yourself doing things like that. Uh, and, and if it goes out of balance, you know, now you've forgotten about your own work. Right. I mean, my own, my own music, you know, I, I ignored my own music for 30 years, you know, and that's, that's, that was stupid. That was, that's, that was wrong. You know, I didn't, I wrote my last, my last new, my last new record was written in 1989 until 2017. Yeah. Right. And then you had one, two years later. Yeah, that was a that literally was a gift from the gods. I mean, I, I mean, well, well, so far, first of all, what wasn't it was it, it was not a new material. It was it was uh, stuff I'd written for other people. Um, but doing that Soul Fire tour, suddenly new ideas started to come to me, and uh, that was summer of sorcery. That was the first, literally, uh, for 2019. Uh, was the first new music since '89. 89, I, 89, I wrote three albums. I wrote Revolution, I wrote um, uh, Born Again Savage, and uh, the Lost Boys album, which still hasn't come out. Um, so I wrote three albums in, in 89, and then, and, then, and then stopped until 2000, you know, as far as new material, until 2019, literally. Did you find that there was a difference in the way you were writing songs when you picked it up again? You know, uh, the, 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 the difference was more in the conceptual part of it. Um, musically, every one of my records is a little different. So it's a little hard to judge, judge them musically because they were all soundtracks to the theme um, of that particular album. So all of the five albums in the 80s are completely different. And you had um, very set ideas on what those themes were going into them too. It wasn't yes, just like this is sort of what happened. Yes. Like you were like, this is about very, this. Very specific. And they were all very different. And so the music was different. They really were the soundtracks to each different movie. These two records, uh, Soul Fire and Summer Sorcery, was the first time I ever did two records in a row with the same band and with the same sound. And, and with, you know, and I, like everybody else does, you know, which was really exciting to me. It was like, Jeez, I always wondered where I would evolve if I if I actually stayed in one genre, you know, for a minute. And that's what happened. Um, the difference. So so that was that was different. Just having Soul Fire and Summer of Sorcery with the same band. But also I decided, you know, if I'm going to make a new record, uh, it's going to be different in two ways. Uh, it's going to be different. I, I'm not it's going to be my first record that's not autobiographical because all my other records are completely autobiographical, pretty much. And it's not going to be political, which will be the first record that wasn't political because it was in the Trump years. And I was like, you know, politics is just redundant at this point. You know, when you have an administration bragging about putting kids in cages uh, to deter, you know, immigration. I mean, what am I going to say? You know, you know, uh, as opposed to the 80s, when all of the crimes are being, you know, were being committed in darkness and, and behind the scenes. And I felt very strongly that, that they needed light put on them, right. you know, 
as everybody was just worshiping Ronald Reagan. Meanwhile, he was running a complete criminal empire, you know, worldwide. And uh, that needed to be pointed out at the time. But, but now, you know, it was the Trump years. So, you know. so I thought it's going to be uh, an interesting challenge to do a non-political record for the first time and non-autobiographical. And it turned out to be just fun. You know, I was, whatever, how many songs there were, you know, I was 12 different characters only in 12 little movies and it was a miracle that just came out of the blue really are you writing still are you writing right now no i only write with purpose if i if i don't know it's coming out and i don't have a reason for it to come out i don't write you know unless somebody you know if chris columbus asks for a song for a movie you know obviously i'll, I'll write one but i don't i don't i don't just write because they tend to be a burden you know once something is written and and then god forbid be recorded then it really becomes a burden if it doesn't come out it has it has to just be released or else it's it's a weird kind of it's a weird kind of psychological burden so i don't i don't i don't i don't write unless i have a, a reason so you don't have another album in mind of like the next one that you want to do no i you know i i i don't um I don't really, uh, like I say, I don't, there's not, there's not a big, you know, audience demand waiting for it. So you don't, you don't get the encouragement in terms of the commerce. So you have to, you know, you have to, you know, produce the energy to do it artistically, you know, have to have some reason to do it artistically. And, uh, and, um, I'd have to, um, I'd have to have something in mind, you know, to, to do that, which, could happen at any, at any moment, you know, I'll suddenly think of something to do, you know, some kind of concept that's interesting to me, uh, which might happen, but, um, you know, my artistic, uh, energy tends to go more towards TV. Um, I want to get back on TV. Yeah. I was, was going to ask you if you had any acting things you're, you're looking toward or show creation, I should say as well. Yeah, I got I got five scripts that, that are out there. You know, I'm like re-energize re that, and and um, and I wouldn't even rule out going back to Lilyhammer, which people are now just discovering for the first time. You know, we were the first show on Netflix, and nobody knew what Netflix was. Right. You know. Yeah, that's crazy. You were the first one on Netflix because that's what they're known for now. So you you know open that door. Yeah, yeah, and so I I wouldn't I, you know. I wouldn't rule out going back to Lilyhammer, which was uh, something I'm very proud of. You know, that's the only European show in history that wasn't remade for America. You know, it, it has the subtitles and, uh, and it got a chance to really show the great Norwegian actors and, and you know, and all the crew and, you know, directors and DPs and writers and just, a, just an enormously talented country that nobody had discovered so it was fun to um it was fun to give people a chance to discover norway what do you like more in the the tv work uh, being in front of the camera or behind the camera you know I, I i directed the final episode and and i liked it more than i thought i would you know because directing you know there's a tv culture and there's a film culture uh, the film culture the director is the boss and uh, in, in TV culture, the writer is the boss. It's right. a big difference. So 
me being, you know, one of the writers and the director, you know, I had quite a lot of latitude and, uh, you know, I watched it for 10 years with Sopranos and I thought, eh, you know, it's kind of fun, but it kind of like a, you know, like a traffic cop, you know, I didn't see a whole lot of artistic, artistically satisfying, uh, you know, uh, uh, elements to it. But um, when I did it, I, I found it, you know, it can be quite, you can be quite creative, actually. Uh, and so I, I, I did enjoy that. Um, in general, I enjoy being behind the camera. That's my natural instinct anyway, uh, whether it's, uh, if I had to identify myself, it would be as a writer producer. Right. Uh, you know, when I'm performing, it's, it's the fun part of life, you know, whether it's acting or whether it's being a rock guy or whatever it is, you know, um, that part of life to me is the fun part, you know, the celebration part. You know, it's not it's not artistically satisfying, like creating something from nothing. You know, you still in touch with uh, David Chase and do you guys like compare notes on this stuff. Yeah, I, I talked to him just uh, 10 minutes ago before before we before we before we uh, before we started talking. Um, we just talk in general. You know, we're still friends. We stay good friends. What do you think of the many saints of Newark? I loved it personally. And, uh, you know, uh, John McGarrow did a terrific Silvio. Uh, I was going to ask. It was pretty funny. I loved it, really. I loved it. And, uh, you know, David, he's never going to make it easy. You know, he, he's he's uh, he's a real contrarian. And uh, the people were after him to do a Sopranos movie for how long? 20, 20 years? However long we've been off the air. And he finally does it. And, and what does he do? He, he does it mainly about a character that wasn't in the show. <laughs> right. You know, and not referred to at all. <laughs> so, so, I mean, he's just a, he's just a riot. I, I love, I love him. He's just a uncompromising, uncompromising guy. And, uh, right. Although then he did a Super Bowl uh, car commercial, Sopranos. Right. 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 That was pretty cool. Right. Yeah, and I realized afterwards that that's uh, it's our uh, homeboy John Cusack uh, doing the narration on it. Oh yeah, yeah. Oh, I didn't realize that. Yeah, that was that's his voice as Meadow seeing AJ. I should say their real names, but that's what it's that's what's going on there. <laughs> oh, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't know that. No, no, no. We, we were just uh, commiserating about this horror of Ukraine. Yeah, yeah I know. No, it's. It, it, it's been a scary time for a while and you keep thinking you're going to get out of it. And then there's just something else. I'm just sick of it. I'm so sick of the bullies, man. You know, sick of it. Sick of the, you know, Republicans bullying the Democrats and, you know, you know, this, this Putin creep. It's just depressing. It really is depressing, man. That's, that's was always the, the through line of, of all the people who've, upset me you know i mean there's all the bullying and stuff but just the lack of truth you know i'll i'll, I'll go with john lennon on that one just give me some truth because it's just like the amount of propaganda and lying just just the campaigns to make you believe stuff that isn't true to make you feel bad about things that are good it's just it's just too much uh we're in a post-truth era and it's about to get worse uh, i just saw a, a test of some technologies 
that are just completely scary. Uh, they can now literally create, you know, a, a face that isn't the right face. And the words coming out of, of their mouth, they can now match exactly the real person. You know, so we're going we're to start seeing literally people on videotape that we know, that recognize, and, and have them saying things that are completely made up by some, you know, Russian bot or whatever. Right. You know. they'll, they'll, they'll have young Elvis Presley coming out with new terrible songs. Well, yeah. I mean, that'll be that part of it. And that'll too, be the less bad stuff. Yeah. Yeah. So it's really, it's about to get even worse. But uh, yeah, well, I with, just hate bullies, man. Fuck. You know? As this pandemic hopefully, you know, is going to clear out of the way. Do you have, uh, you know, plans or hopes to get back on a stage anytime soon? We had, we were going to do it and then uh, kept postponing. So 23 is up in the air. You know what I mean? I, I think uh, the rest of 22 is, 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 is uh, gone. Um, but um, I guess 23 would be a possibility. I, I don't know. We'll see what Bruce wants to do. Uh, I, I don't think I'll be able to get my own band funded. And if I, if, you know, cause it's extremely expensive. And uh, um, if, if that was the case, I, I would, I would write a new album if I thought somebody would fund it, but um, that's unlikely. So right now I'm looking at TV. Right. Um, we'll see. Is there anything else, you know, that you're still looking to accomplish after all this time? Like this, like, like anything that's out there that you're like, I haven't done this yet. And I just want to do that. Well, I, I, I like, I like doing live, live events. I really, you know, that, like I said, in the book, the, the, the rascals brought the Broadway show. I, I think it was the, the high point of my artistic life. Uh, I, if I had to live my life over again, I, I would do nothing but that. You know, just just create live events, and you know, I thought I wanted to be uh, you know Pete Townsend, but um, I think I, I you know I really wanted to be Diaghilev, you know, <laughs> or, right. uh, or or Bob Fosse. I think that's you know it's really satisfying when you have all of the different elements. You know, you have you have the set design and and, and music, of course. The, the the book the story the choreography you know the wardrobe i mean when you, all of those things together the lighting you know that to me is the most fun and uh i i've, I've only done it once really you know um and that's one thing I, I i wish i had a chance to do more often and but i think uh you know you have to you have to be in that world to do that to be in that live event you know be known as a live event producer do you have other ones in mind that you want to do? No, not really. No, just, um, just, just, I, I just like that, that sort of thing. I mean, I, I've produced, you know, I've produced obviously records, radio, TV, some movies, documentaries. Um, but, uh, the Broadway show, I think was the most, the most satisfying. All right. Well, thank you so much. There's so many things you do on so many levels that I've enjoyed and, and I really appreciate it. Uh, I think you've accomplished a ton. So thank you so much. And uh, I hope to cross paths with you again soon. Cool, man. Good talking to you. 
That's a wrap on episode 23 of Carol Pop. Thanks so much to Stevie Van Zant for sharing so much of himself in this conversation and in general. You can enjoy the Little Steven experience on his three Sirius XM satellite stations, Little Steven's Underground Garage, Outlaw Country, and Little Steven's Coolest Songs in the World. You can also hear his work with Bruce Springsteen and the E Street Band, Southside Johnny and the Asbury Jukes, and Little Steven and the Disciples of Soul. Those last two Little Steven albums, Soul Fire and Summer of Sorcery, are as ambitious as anything he's done. Thanks, as always, to web developer Marty Rosenbaum and to Lou Carlozo, who recorded the catchy Carol Pop theme. This podcast is produced by Chris Swake, the consigliere of Carol Pop. I'm Mark Caro. Please follow me on Twitter at Mark Caro, at M-A-R-K-C-A-R-O, and at Carol Pop One. Visit the Carol Pop website, carolpop.com, for posts about music, movies, and food, and this Carol Pop podcast. Thanks.